Good afternoon, everyone. This is Daniel Paris, host of Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. I'm delighted to do a special episode today where my guest is you or someone perhaps like you. My guest is a friend of mine. His name is Ron. I'm not going to share his last name, but we might call him Everyman. Uh, he may or may not object to that characterization, but he's a friend of mine, and we have been in the habit of discussing the markets and retirement planning, and we thought it might be a good idea to share some of our conversations with you at this time in an informal setting. So this is a bit of an outtake from the more structured uh, Keep Calm and Carry On Investing podcast, but uh, I hope you'll find it of interest. Ron, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. So your, your situation is a, a great deal like, I think, many listeners, which is you are obviously aware of the market. You have a 401k. You may have your own brokerage account. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, you are now of an age, and we won't mention your age, but let's say in the mid-50 range, uh, has a five-handle, uh, and you're beginning to think about retirement and how you can position uh, your your portfolio. And it's on the basis of that that we've had all these conversations. I should, as a disclaimer, please note for everyone, I'm not a registered investment advisor, uh, nor am I selling any individual uh, financial products. So this is really just a discussion between friends about how to think about uh, retirement planning and the stock market's role in that. Uh, my official and formal SEC answer to any specific investment question is, has been, and will always be, please consult your investment advisor. So with that disclaimer out of the way, Ron, we've had some informal discussions. Let's kind of replay some of those uh, things, some of the questions or concerns that you have. You are an attorney by, by trade, so you're uh, not uh, you're close enough to the financial markets to see it outside your window, but not actually a, a practitioner. W you know, what are the biggest issues that you see as you, at this stage in your life, are thinking about retirement and the qu unanswered questions that you have uh, about the role the stock market should or shouldn't play in that? So I guess, Dan, where I'd start is that my entire wealth portfolio, if you will, is tied up in the marketplace, i.e. my tax-qualified retirement assets and non-qualified accounts. And that wealth portfolio is divided fairly equally between the two. So and for others, you know, uh, a 401k or a retirement plan, and then a taxable account, a brokerage account, uh, a wealth management account that you have. So something behind a tax wall and half behind a tax wall, roughly, and half uh, in what we would call a taxable account. Is that uh, correct? That's right. And 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 that is so. So my wife has a Roth four hundred one k. She also has a traditional um, IRA, and I have a very small Roth. I have. A substantial traditional IRA. I also have a retirement account through my firm, which is not a 401k. It's a it's more of a traditional profit sharing plan. And then we have a jointly held a brokerage account that is non-tax qualified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And over the you know 30 years that I've had the opportunity to save, 
I've always tried to be well diversified, but I remain in my late 50s very, very heavily weighted in equities and not fixed income. And my biggest concern is what should my level of exposure to equities be? What should those equities be? And how do I manage that going forward so that I'm able to sustain a certain lifestyle in my retirement and minimize the risk of, of exposing what I have to downturns that are eventually going to happen that we haven't seen happen in, in a decade or, or more, but for the big blip in earlier March. in 2020. Yeah. So those are great questions. And I want to separate them into two separate questions, if I can. They're, they're relevant to each other, but they're worth separating. The first is the, the definition of risk. And this is a, a big issue for me, if, and listeners to the show will be aware, followers of my written work, that my definition of risk is not really the standard one. And I, I think it's uh, interesting to ask individuals for their definitions of risk, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So that's question one, though I may treat it second. The, the other question is the breakdown between um, equity and fixed income, as well as alternatives, though in financial assets, particularly in the type of structures that you've described, it's generally, you have you know, three options, cash or cash-like products, fixed income, or equities. And uh, there's this standard notion that as you age, you would shift from your what you admit to be a heavy weighting in equities to a greater weighting in fixed income as a risk management exercise because the perception is that fixed income is less risky uh, than, than equity. And the reason I want to raise both questions is because they're obviously very linked. If your definition or my definition of risk is the industry standard of risk, which is uh, a kind of a, a technical answer, which is the, the standard deviation of total return over a certain period of time, and we literally don't even have to get into that other than to just point out it is the industry standard and it is uh, price-based. Then, then this notion that you shift over time from equities to fixed income uh, may well still be uh, appropriate. And a financial advisor or the internet would give you the scale. Let's say, I don't know, let's just say you're 80-20 right now, equity, fixed income. You would begin to scale in the direction of fixed income uh, so that by in you know, 15 or 20 years' time, you're probably 80-20 the other way. Whatever, whatever the financial advisory you know, tool or an online tool would suggest to you. That's the standard approach. And yeah, I've got to say, for many a decade and many a million a person, that's probably okay. Uh, what I, I hope we could do here is not to necessarily challenge that, but just to ask some questions around it so that you feel better doing that or not, that you choose to do something else, whatever the case may be, that you know why you would begin to shift into fixed income uh, or not, or the type of equities that you would choose and, and the approach. So, you know, that's, that's how I respond to that. And, and again, it does come down to this definition, definition of risk. Uh, as I mentioned to you, the industry standard, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, the, your financial advisor, if you have one, 
or if you went onto an online tool, the primary definition of risk uh, used in the industry, uh, specifically around equities, is, is again, the volatility, measure of volatility, how much share prices move up and down. And that translates into how much total return, what you're, you're getting out of this, how much it varies over time. You know, generally speaking, it's positive. You get a positive return most years, some years not, but most years, yes. But is it up 50% one year and down 50% the next? Or is it up 5% one year and you know, down 2% the next? The former of those two scenarios is considered riskier. So that's the industry standard of, of, of uh, risk. It's, it is what it is. No one's going to go to jail using that, that standard of risk. I, as a business person, don't use that standard of risk. I look at cash flow as a standard of risk, how much it's going up and down, not the price of the business. And as we mentioned, Ron, you're an attorney. You could say you could look at your, your own business as, a, as an attorney and judge risk, not how much your practice is worth if you were to sell your practice or your firm's practice to another law firm, but how much cash flow is coming in or out of the door and defining that as, as risk. So uh, there are also other ways of defining risk. You mentioned one at the end of your introduction, which is a drawdown risk. How much, how can you avoid a significant drawdown in your asset level when you're 80? That's you know, not going to be a good thing. And so you want to avoid that situation. So there are three definitions of risk. I'm going to throw a fourth one in, which is sleep at night. And it probably draws on the other three, but it, in many ways for certain investors uh, or retirees, it's its, own, it's its own definition of risk. So having, having provided those options, and there are actually others as well, but they're more technical in nature, when you think about risk and what you're concerned about, do you have a specific definition of risk in mind? I wouldn't say I have a specific definition of risk, but, but the risk, the risks that I that I'm concerned about are one, the scenario that you identified as the market going down 50% one year and up 50% the next year. I, I, I would not want to be exposed to something like that in my retirement. Um, the other risk is on the fixed income side, or, or, or maybe even you I'll call, I'll use your term, maybe cash flow, is that I'm not able to generate cash flow that keeps up with inflation. And so that the growth of what I'm trying to live on is really not growing, it's going backwards because of inflation. So, so those would be sort of my concerns. Uh, if it's fixed, that actually doesn't serve a lot of purposes. And that's why it's often you have a combination of, quote, fixed income and well as well as equity. And the equity is designed to, to address that very issue of having some sort of growth, whether it's a harvested capital gain or just growth in the dividend stream from uh, dividend-paying equities to address inflation. So that's a, that's a very well-stated concern. So your risks are a kind of a mix of a big drawdown and income to uh, meet your li projected living standard or uh, income needs and uh, living standards and the expectation that uh, although inflation has been absent for quite some time, that inflation, uh, you, you perceive inflation to be a real risk as, as you approach retirement and that you would want to have a mechanism to address inflation. 
Yeah, I'd say that's right. I, I don't know that I see necessarily, to your point, that inflation today is a risk. But I am concerned, given the interest rate environment, that if inflation ticks up, that side of my portfolio is 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 going to become less valuable. That is the fixed income side. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So these are all standard concerns, and they're they're well articulated. And you know, this is part of the challenge of investing is that it's not a single factor issue. It's not a here's the answer. And that's why you have uh, asset allocation strategy that's fixed income, cash, personal and private uh, businesses, equities, to try to uh, address these concerns, and that you engage in, in, in multiple risk management tools to whether it's inflation or wild swings in NAV and net asset value and share prices, that you basically, part of the, the answer here that addresses almost all those concerns is diversification. In your case, diversification seems would seem to mitigate an overwhelming impact from any one of those uh, any one of those risk factors. So that's that's all good. Now, again, definitionally, it's easy to say the word diversification. As a matter of fact, it's probably in advertising for financial goods and services. It's a very common word, and uh, it's going to be on the glossies from any financial advisor. Or broker, um, and it's actually in the fine print as well. But here too, it's just worth, in addition to asking the question about risk, it's also worth asking the question about diversification. And again, the industry has a standard of diversification. I find issue with it, but you may not, and other investors may not. But they ought to know what diversification means. So let's let's kind of cover that territory a little bit if you don't mind. So I asked you about your definition of risk or what you define as risk and, and you came up with a couple different forms, but do you have a sense of what, you, you know, you want to be diversified and actually given your constraints and your concerns, being diversified is a good idea, a very good idea. But what do you, what do you have in mind as uh, the definition of diversification? So for me, diversification starts at a very high level and then drills down into, a little, into, into more detail. So for me, it starts with what we've been talking about, equity and fixed income. And then for me, on the equity side, I break, I break down what I foresee as um, investments in domestic equities, U.S., and then uh, in a portion of my investments in um, internationals. And, and, and within the domestic, it would be a, some form of a breakdown between large cap, mid cap, and small cap. And within the, um, and, 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 and maybe even sprinkle in some, some REITs, real estate investment trusts. And on the international piece, it would be a breakdown between investments in, in the developed markets and in the emerging markets. And then on the, on the fixed income side, um, the breakdown, it, 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 I don't really know how to break it down other than um, if, if, if I'm going to invest in funds, uh, invest in funds with different, I think the term of art is durations, um, um, or, or to even consider individual bonds and laddering those bonds is, is something else I've, I've toyed with. But, but that's, the, that's really the side that I, I'm not really sure how to diversify. 
Sure. And so let me some definitional issues without answering the question, but some definitional issues. Duration can mean two things. Uh, it can mean literally the, the, uh, how long the bond is. Does it mature in three years, five years, seven years? So kind of a standard definition, everyday definition of duration. It also means a technical uh, uh, definition of a bond portfolio is how sensitive it is to interest rate movements. That also is called duration. But um, in effect, there are forms of diversification as well. The other form of diversification in bonds that you didn't mention, but is often mentioned, is uh, different types of credit uh, levels. That is, uh, high-risk bonds, high-yield bonds versus treasuries versus corporates in the middle. So a kind of a risk of default um, uh, spectrum within the fixed income space. But right. otherwise, if you add that, you've pretty much hit the key, certainly on the equity side, the, the key diversification issues that one encounters. Those, you, you, didn't, you, know, you may not have hit every single last subcategory of equity investment, but you hit a lot of them. Large, small, mid. You didn't mention value and growth, uh, but you, you could have, but you, you, you know, domestic and international um, real estate investment trusts have used to be viewed separately. They're now kind of rolled in. My question becomes that that's a lot of categories. And this is something that I, I uh, without getting into the size of your account, it struck me and it still strikes me, and this is a criticism of the industry. It's just something I would ask you to think about is that you could have in, in your account, you could have, based on what you've just said, reasonably have 10 or 12 different silos, buckets, and you'd allocate money to each of them. And you'd certainly be diversified. The question is, is it almost too much? Because particularly, and we'll get to this in a moment, whether you want to buy individual securities or have an asset manager or buy index funds and ETFs, you could have, let's just say round number, not, not your number, but let's just say that's a, a million dollars. You could have 10 different buckets, and for whatever reason you choose to weight them equally, it's 10, 10 buckets with $100,000 each. And you you're going to have a lot of securities. You're going to have thousands upon, if you have 10 different buckets and you buy an index fund for each of them, you're going to have well over, well over a thousand, probably a couple thousand dollars, a couple thousand different uh, securities in your portfolio indirectly through, through an index fund. That's certainly diversification. Uh, that's not keeping all of your eggs in one basket. That is... Uh, but I just want to point out to you and to everyone else who, who heads down that path, just to, to think about it, at what point does diversification, when you have thousands of different securities in a portfolio, become just market exposure? The fellow who came up with diversification and mathematically said it was a good idea, you can find diversification comments in the, in the Old Testament, by the way, and in Shakespeare and in many other forms of popular culture. It's not a particularly uh, uh, difficult to understand concept. But the fellow who came up with diversification as a good idea for risk management and return management in finance was in the 1950s, and he was dealing with a practice at the time supported by brokers who were probably more self-interested than they ought to have been. A practice at the time of having two, three, four, five investments period, stocks in their case, or bonds, but, you know, five. And the, this fellow said, you know, a few more would be a better idea. And uh, he, he ended up coming up with an idea that uh, 
you know, nine plus cash would be better than what the, the fellow Gerald Loeb, a broker on, famous broker on Wall Street, was saying. Nine plus cash would be better than two or three. And then a bunch of academics took over and they said, well, you know, 20 or 30 is even better than, than nine plus cash. And uh, the math of diversification from a, a total return perspective, from a, a total asset value perspective, does hit its stride at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, different types of, of, of securities, whether they're bonds or fixed income. We've gotten to a point today, and I just, again, it may be the path of least resistance to buy a bunch of index funds and have thousands of different securities, but it's actually not diversification anymore. That's just a different form of overall market exposure. We've gone past diversification to, in the form that it's currently pursued, to just, you're basically just buying the fixed income and the, uh, and the stock market with thousands of different, the mix might be, you might have slightly more, exposure to Tesla or slightly less exposure to Tesla because of, of an index fund and, and how you go about it. But basically you're getting, when you have thousands of different holdings, you're, you're basically getting market exposure. And I, I personally think that's beyond diversification and you're, you're gonna get a, a market exposure. And the risk there, and again, I'm not encouraging you to do one or the other, just make a part of the conversation, is that if you follow the path of maximum diversification, you think you're reducing risk in an environment where some assets may be very, very expensive, you may actually be increasing your risk because you're buying into them in an in, uh, uh, almost excessively diversified fashion. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the 10-year is at 1%, which is low, and the stock market is by other people's statements that you can see, the stock market appears to be fairly expensive. So if there, there is some risk to an excessively diversified portfolio because you're just sucking up your uh, vacuuming up the market as it, as it uh, exists and that could be could be uh, a risky strategy on its own. Does that make sense? It, it, yeah, I'm not sure, Dan, honestly, that I completely understand the point about the uh, risk of being exposed to the entire market because certain securities like a Tesla are so overpriced, according to, to many. Um, and, and honestly, I've, I've, I've thought about my diversification being nothing more than an exposure to the marketplace and sort of thinking, you know, well, why should I have any expectation that I should be doing any better than the market? Shouldn't I be satisfied with what the market gives me? That's that's a stunningly self-aware statement that very few investors have. I, uh, most people do not want Lake Wobegon, and they naturally think they deserve better than Lake Wobegon. Do I do I misinterpret you that you you're okay with Lake Wobegon? You, you, you do not misinterpret me. And, and, and I'll tell you briefly how I got there. And how I got there is, it seems like every time I've listened to a proponent of actively managed funds, the, uh, the folks who um, oversee our profit sharing plan, it, 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 it all, they, they, none of them uh, 
are good prognosticators and they may be right one year, but they're not right the next year. And then you come back to this cliche reversion to the mean. And I, I, I've come to the realization that um, I'm, I'm, I'm content with, with the mean. Okay. So that's, as I said, uh, stunningly self-aware. And it does lead down one path, uh, which we're going to get to. I, I, I want to uh, circle back for making a decision in favor of making decisions. But it, it does sound like if you are comfortable with that, the, and then leads to the question of passive versus active. And it sounds like you're pretty comfortable with this passive approach because you're, you're content to just accept the market's return as it is. Yeah. Although that being said, Dan, I can talk out of both sides of my mouth and I'm, I'm self-conflicted because within my portfolio, I haven't allocated everything to a passive, to, to passive investments. I do have a number of actively managed funds. So, so there's, there's sort of a split there. I can't tell you exactly what it is, but there's sort of a split there. And so I, I am conflicted sometimes about whether and in which categories I'm content taking a passive approach versus relying on, on active. Understood. So two, two other questions. Again, I, I happen to be in the, the, uh, you know, the dividend business. And so for me, return is defined. I'm shifting topic a little bit because uh, we're, we're talking about accepting return. But for me, accepting the market's cash return is, is simply unacceptable because it's so low. So as a dividend manager, focus on uh, generating a higher uh, level of income than can be gotten from the, from the market. Currently, the market's yields around 1.6%, which is uh, not much better than the 10-year. Now, the dividend on the S&P 500 is growing. But Again, the, the, the income stream is so small, it can grow quite a bit and still not material. And so one also has to ask oneself and, and your alpha, you know, is the return that you're looking for, not just the risk, but the return that you're looking for, the NAV return, the cash flow return, the, the income that you receive from your fixed income and equity investments, or is it just the, the amount at the bottom of the, the page the total capital that's in the in the account at the end of the uh, at the at the end of the measurement period. Again, I, my day job is to focus on the uh, amount and growth of the income stream. Most people, even if they say they're interested in the income stream, they they still their eyes they can't keep their eyes away from the total account value at the at the bottom. W where do you fall on that spectrum? And again, there's no right or wrong answer, but there's self knowledge in knowing. You know whether you really are an income investor, as it were, or whether you're you're focused on the stock market, and you know higher prices are, are always better, regardless of of whether there's income associated with them or not. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and I don't know that I've given it a ton of thought, Dan, but I will tell you that um, up until probably recently in my life, I've been primarily focused on that bottom line. But as I'm getting closer to um, retirement, I think about the income and how I can maximize income and minimize risk. And I don't, I don't know the answer. I can only tell you that from Ron Everyman's perspective, that's, that's my interest. And my concern, you know, and uh, this is uh, and very honest and heartfelt answer. So thank you for that. 
one of the great challenges of this exercise is exactly as you just described it. We are engaged in an, in an exercise similar to life in general about decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. We just don't know. We don't know what school to go to, which job to go to. We take a chance. We, which person to marry, a spouse, you know, job to take, and so forth. And you make your decision. It's hard to, to run a double-blind study on, on, on these things. You just go through life. You make your best, you make your best shot, and, and hopefully it works out in some sense. You try. You take all the information that you have, and you make your best uh, decision. Finance and investing is, of course, that way. But here's the extra challenge for, for you and for everyone else. Finance dresses itself up as a science. And as we know, as a hard science, and as we know in the hard sciences, there is a right answer and a wrong answer. High school chemistry, high school physics, maybe not you know, Einstein physics where you begin to ponder the nature of, of even the math, but outside of the realm of, of extremely theoretical physics, chemistry, biology, et cetera, uh, there are right and wrong answers. And there are formulas usually associated with those. I think one of the great, great errors that we make in finance is in considering it a science, when in fact it really is a, um, an exercise in human psychology, in, in society, history, culture, outcomes, business outcomes. And, and business is known not to be a science. Business is known to be business. You make good decisions, you make bad decisions. You can't always tell. And being an, an attorney... You, you wouldn't characterize your career trajectory or your, 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 your activities as an attorney as a science. I don't think you would. I think you would acknowledge that there, there are lots of zigs and zags. It's not as clear cut as a science. And part of what the, the, the challenge in investment planning, retirement planning is, is that people are looking for the answer. What's the right asset allocation, fixed income cash? equities? What's the right approach to uh, passive versus active, to international versus domestic, to value versus growth, to small cap versus large cap? And there are lots of vendors. I, I am subject to them every day. Lots of vendors of products and formulas and algorithms which tell me that in order to maximize every last penny out of, say, the stock market, here is the computer that you want to use and the algorithm that you want to use to allow you to do that. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, uh, but I, I think they're taking, my heartfelt belief is that they're taking something that is not really uh, meant to be understood as a precise formula down to the fourth or fifth decimal point, and they're selling it as a tool that allows you to achieve investment outcomes down to the fourth or fifth decimal point. And uh, investing, the market, business, life, Human affairs—they're not—they're not the chemical composition of a rock, and I—I uh, I just don't know that they're that knowable. So, your frustration and, and your kind of asking these questions and agreeing to come on this show—you know—highlight the nature of that challenge. If there were a precise formula for you, you would have found it already, or someone will call in and, and give it to you. And we should kind of shift to that topic at this point. Do you use a financial advisor? It sounds like you don't at this point. Actually, Dan, I, 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 I do, and, and I would say that generally I, I, I follow what he 
says. But that being said, I have not allowed him to completely manage my investments. And so um, within my firm's profit sharing plan, I'm, I'm stuck with our our active managers for now and they do what they do and we're we're about to actually change that um but that's for a discussion for another day but i also manage a bunch on my own um, yeah and um but i do have an advisor and and you know i'm skeptical of of, of him like i i don't know i do that's so here and again i'm going to do the uh, the disclaimer uh no no uh, this show is not presenting specific investment advice and that my answer to any and all questions is please consult your financial advisor. But I actually want to take that up, not just as a disclaimer, but I, I want to suggest that the investing exercise is as much an exercise in trust as it is in algorithms and math and asset allocation and sector exposure. And what I mean by that is that probably the best investment decision somebody can make is in choosing their financial advisor or choosing not to choose a financial advisor and kind of uh, you know, doing it on your own. And that that trust choice, either trusting in yourself because you're prepared to spend the time to look into these issues or trusting in an advisor because as an agency cost, uh, you know, you, you're, you're paying them to do this and you trust their honesty and their intelligence and that Maybe they don't deliver you to, to Palm Beach and a membership in Mar-a-Lago uh, within 12 months, but they, they allow you to live a comfortable retirement, help you uh, in a comfortable retirement, that, uh, that that's in many ways the most important decision. It's, it's almost a self-knowledge decision, a, a, a trust decision. Uh, that's not <laughs> in the SEC's guidelines about or anyone else's guidelines about how you pursue retirement, but it, it is my, my statement that Ultimately, you make a decision whether, again, to do it yourself, to trust your manager of your profit sharing program. It doesn't sound like you do. I understand that. Or a financial advisor and, and kind of go with that or, or not and do it yourself. So I, I, would, uh, I would encourage you to think in those terms about whether you want to continue to segment your, your choices and have some overseen by a financial advisor, some do it yourself. But whatever you do, you know, want to you want to feel comfortable personally with that decision. Again, you can't really run counterfactual. It's hard to run counterfactual exercises, and you know we'll see in thirty years whether that was a good or bad choice. But uh, you'll at least feel more comfortable during that thirty-year period that you you uh, made a decision that you were comfortable with. How you do that is hard. I think it depends on your financial circumstances and your personality whether you're inclined to trust somebody uh, or not and, and uh, your personal relationship with them. But uh, I think that, that, uh, that trust relationship, which is not written about in the finance textbooks or the investing textbooks, is still such a critical, a critical function uh, in, in this process. And I, I would say to you, Dan, that I trust my advisor implicitly. I, I find him to be credible and honest as the day is long and he never tries to pressure me into any particular investment product um, um, but 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 I would just say that generally I don't know that he's 
any better a predictor of what's going to happen than, than, than I am. And so that's why I in part listen to him and follow his advice and in part why on the other side, I try to do it on my own. And that's fine. You're at a stage where you have the energy and resources to do that. That, right. that, that break down into different silos of assets and how they're treated may, may work for you just fine. Other people don't want to have to deal with the finance at all, and they're going to just leave it all to a financial advisor. And their number one challenge is to f- establish a trust relationship with somebody. And, and by the way, Dan, let, I'll tell you one other concern. I've been with this fella for 25 years. And, and one of my concerns is, I'm sorry. He he happens to have aged 25 years in the whole process as well. He's, he's <laughs> so exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this is part of my 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 concern as we move forward. You know, as I age, while I hope I have my faculties 20 years from now, like I do now, I need to be prepared for not necessarily being as of sound mind that I am, as I am now. And my advisor is the same age as me. And I have a concern that as I age, I may want to have someone younger in the game who's at my side, as opposed to someone who's in the same place in life as me. That is a concern. My, my son has, uh, we're in, you, know, you and I are the same age, you know that, and uh, uh, my son has uh, told me that he uh, is planning to put everything in Bitcoin, so he's got taken care of, even after I've lost control of my faculties, <laughs> he's, he's got that taken care of, he's got his Coinbase account set up, and uh, so we're, we're, we're good, we're, I've taken care of that. Ron, that, that is a, a good point. I don't have a specific answer for you, but that can be fixed. It's just hard to do it because, again, you've had a trust relationship with this person, and now you have to, in effect, uh, fix that. If they are doing a good job, they will have an internal mechanism. They will have found a transition mechanism within their financial advisory practice to address that very issue. If it's just a solo practitioner who's going to be selling his book of business in a couple years, then, yeah, you do have a problem there. But... uh, I work with financial planners and mostly on the brokerage side more than uh, full-time financial planners, traditional financial planners, but they are always worried about succession in their own businesses and how they transition their clients from one generation of, of the broker to the next. So you're not the first person to ask that question. Uh, so, and, and frankly, your, your financial advisor should have been asked that question many times over. So you, you may just wonder if you trust him, just you can ask that question openly. Yeah. For sure. Let's wrap it up a little bit here. I just want to, you know, you've raised a, a lot of very, very good questions. And I think that even though you don't have answers for all of them right now about asset allocation, about a financial advisor, about the definitions of risk and the definitions of return, is it income? Is it NAV? You've indicated the transition from one to the other. NAV, net asset value, that's the, the price and the, the value of the account versus the income stream. The fact that in your mid 50s, you're Asking all of these questions and thinking about these different channels, I think, puts you in a, in a, in a pretty good uh, position. I would say that not being able to find an explicit answer, a, a, a formula that says you should be 62% equity today and 27.5% fixed income, and every 
18 months, we're going to shift that by 75 basis points. And we're going to have in our equity portfolio a, a beta starting at 1.2, and it's going to go down to 1.15, uh, you know, every five years, and we'll take another seven beta. You know, that type of technical answer is out there in the marketplace. And a lot of financial advisory firms will have formulas that will lead you down that path. As you can tell from my comments, I would, you know, be, you know, that may work for you, but don't be, I wouldn't say take it in because that suggests legal connotations, but don't, don't, don't necessarily uh, succumb to a false sense of precision. We own businesses. A stock is just an ownership stake in a business. As you know, from the legal profession, and I know from the investment profession, you know, some businesses do well, others do not. You can't foretell the future exactly. In a diversified portfolio, whether it's 30 or 40 different holdings or 3,000 or 4,000 different holdings, you're, you're going to be shielded from the worst uh, downside of uh, not being diversified, of, of business failures. So that's good. And you know, my, my advice for people looking for that three or four decimal points of precision is don't look for three or four decimal points of precision. There's an answer out there for you. It's probably right for you. But it's the one that allows you, in my, from my perspective, to sleep at night and feel comfortable with what you're doing. Maybe it does not maximize total return. Maybe it focuses on uh, uh, income. Maybe it focuses on, on, on uh, total return and not income. Maybe you have a reason not to be involved in the fixed income market. Maybe you have a reason to, given your particular situation, to be entirely in the fixed income market, whatever the case may be. But there is no single precise answer. And uh, I, I think you should uh, continue to explore and ask the questions that you are of your financial advisor. Feel free to ask me again. Happy to have you back on the show if, if circumstances change. Uh, and, and find the answer that you're comfortable with. And uh, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's West Palm Beach uh, is the answer. Maybe it's Pittsburgh. But uh, I, I think there's, uh, there's room for, uh, you know, a comfortable retirement in both scenarios. Ron Everyman, thank you so much for, for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I wish you well. And we will continue this, uh, this conversation uh, offline. Thank you for, for being a guest on Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. Thanks for having me, Dan. It was very enjoyable.